The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. So, <clears throat> we're continuing to look at this teaching of the seven characteristics of a Dharma person, a person of the way. I mentioned a little bit um, earlier that, you know, when we come into practice and encounter these teachings that are pointing to these qualities of a bodhisattva, of an enlightened being, of, that exists within ourselves that we're cultivating, there can be the danger of just trying to um, assume those, put them on, uh, to, in a certain sense, contrive them. And at the same time, so that's not so good, because it's not quite genuine. At the same time, we are actually trying to, to bring something about here. And so there's a dynamic there, a tension, a good tension, between what we are aspiring to realize and to embody and where we are. And both of those are really essential to keep in view and in a healthy relationship with each other. Because without the aspiration, well, it's not going to happen. But if we, and without trying to cultivate these qualities, right, that's not going to happen either. So we have to, it's a study. And it's not something we figure out. It's something we have to live into. So the fourth of these characteristics is good conduct, which I am thinking of as right living. And drawing from the commentaries, uh, one set of commentaries by Trumper and Pache. He said, Good conduct is quite straightforward. It's based on being willing to work on yourself, which is the logic of individual salvation and dedicating your deeds to the benefit of sentient beings. It's the logic. In other words, it's the basis. It's sort of the understanding that if we want <clears throat> to liberate ourselves and be of service to others, then we are have to, we're going to have to work on it. We're going to have to work on something, and that something the Buddha made very clear in his own enlightenment is ourselves. And so when we cultivate mindfulness in our meditation, off and off the cushion, when we sort of study and, and cultivate and work with right intention and understanding, right understanding, of what is good and what is not good, what's true and what's not true, what's skillful. What should we be doing and what should we not be doing? What's really important, what's important but of lesser importance, and what's not so important. So in Session, we establish, Session establishes the things that we're going to really concentrate on. So there are areas of training, for instance, that we don't really engage. Right? So we can fully engage in the things that for Sashin are considered the most important things. And that all of this 
comes out of our city. And it's not that that's the only place it's happening, nor should it be, otherwise our zazen is divorced from everything else. But it's in our zazen that it, we have the greatest opportunity, it's the most powerful, it's the least cluttered, because there's nothing else going on but you. And so these things that we're cultivating have to work together within our zazen. That's what we're cultivating. Because without mindfulness, we're not aware of what we're experiencing and reacting to. We can have good intentions, but it's like we're moving in the dark. Without good intention, without right intention, we don't have a clear direction. We don't have a clear sense of what it is we're in the midst of, or what the path is, and where it leads, and where we want to go. So there's little focus or aspiration. There's no sense of a larger path. So there's a a moment-to-moment awareness of now. But so that that doesn't become myopic, that needs to be embedded within a much larger sense of the path. And without right effort, we won't discern. We won't become clear about what is skillful and not skillful. Because those things get cloudy. It's oftentimes not clear to us. And right effort is a really essential part of the Eightfold Path. It's The Buddha said it's seen that when something unskillful arrives, something that's not going to help us, that's going to further bind us, strengthen our attachments, strengthen our false views, and so on, disturb our mindfulness. When we see those things arising, we recognize them as being unskillful, and we practice letting them pass. Or we transform them into compassion. Or we realize them as empty, and then they self-liberate. And then we recognize what is unskillful before it even arises. So one is, a, is more responsive or reactive to what we see arising, and the other is becoming more aware before it even arises. It's like when there's distant thunder rumbling coming in your direction, and you shift so that that storm just blows past. And then they're seeing what is skillful, what does actually help, what's really important to be cultivating and strengthening <clears throat> when that arises and to strengthen it, to nurture it. Like lighting a fire and you've got a small flame or a small ember and you very gently breathe into it, blow onto it until it gains strength. And at a certain point, that fire, even in a heavy rain, will continue to burn. And then they're seeing what is skillful before it arises. It's like before the sun rises, having a sun sense of the dawn. And so you climb up on a hill and do a little sun dance to get it to come. <laughs> and right effort helps us to go straight ahead, to make progress on the path and not get distracted. If we get distracted, we won't find our way home. You miss your supper. So it keeps us on track. Commentary says, right living or good conduct is based on mindfulness and awareness in which you see whatever you are doing as an extension of your zazen. Awareness is not self-consciousness. It's just simply looking and seeing what you're doing. You respect yourself 
and the sacredness of your very being. When you have self-respect, you don't spill tea in your saucer and you don't put your shoes on the wrong feet. You appreciate the weather, your coffee, your clothes, your shower. There's a tremendous sense that for now, at this time, you're becoming a real human being. Self-respect. You respect yourself and the sacredness of your being. And I think that's extremely important for us to consider, to reflect on. You know, in our hyper-individualized culture, in which there's so much emphasis on the self and everything about the self, it would seem that in putting that self forward, it, we're taking care of it. We're venerating it, we're highly regarding it, we're respecting it, but it's not that. I mean, just look and see how much lack of care and regard and veneration and respect there is. And self-respect runs through all of the teachings and all of the aspects of practice, if we think of it this way, of regarding ourselves as just a being worthy of respect, simply because we are. We're here. And perhaps even more so because we are trying to do something about it. We're not just sort of going through life trying to like have as much fun as we can and damn the costs. We're actually trying to do something good, profoundly good, that is not easy to do. That's worthy of respect, to recognize that. Our attachments, false views, the judgment, the self-criticism, our greed and anger, pride, jealousy. I mean, if we think about it, all of those forces, those states of mind and body, emotion, are really not respecting ourselves. Practice is respecting yourself and the sacredness of your being. We should really examine that, reflect on that. You know, sometimes, I remember Robert Thurman was here many years ago, many years ago. He's doing a retreat, we were down in the dining room. And I don't remember what the subject was, but somehow the question of Sitting came up and how much, how much people sit. And he was asking people, you know, how much do you sit? And people were being very shy, selfless, you know. And he said, no, no, you should, you should brag about it. He said, you should, be, you should be happy about how much you're sitting. You should chart it. You don't have to chart it. But, <laughs> but there's that tendency to, to sort of misunderstand a selflessness as though we can't have any positive appreciation for ourselves or what we do or what we've accomplished. But if we think of respecting somebody else, we're willing to do that for them. Right understanding, right intention, speech and action, all of these aspects of the Eightfold Path are having deep respect, not just for ourselves as a human being, but ourselves as Buddha practitioners as being on the path. And when we respect ourselves more, it's just going to be more natural and easy for us to have respect, extend that respect to others. And of course, conversely, when we don't respect ourselves, we may be willing to grant things to other people, be generous with other people in ways that we're not generous 
or want to extend things to ourselves. But very often what comes along is a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment in the shadows of others. And so good conduct, which basically means living well, trying to live well. That's why the precepts are so important. When we come into session and take up the precautions, that's how do we live well in silence in a way that really encourages, makes conducive this time and this space being together. How do we navigate 70 people, right? Doing all the things that we do during the course of the day without conversation and silence. That everybody who comes here is expected to be practicing the precepts, whether you've received them or not. If you look at that statement of inclusion on the, at the front door, to basically treat ourselves and each other with respect, with dignity. Because if we're not doing that, then we're not practicing Buddha Dharma, just simply. And we don't have to know each other well. We don't have to know each other's stories. We don't have to understand each other's histories, where we came from. If we understand those things, fine. But we don't have to. In other words, our, our regard and, and, and compassion and love and respect for each other as a bodhisattva is not based on all of those personal characteristics, although they can help but it's just based on your being, on each other's being. That's enough. That's plenty. <laughs> the awareness of the teacher is the next of the seven characteristics, which I think of as asking for the teachings. <clears throat> you know, when I think about, reflect on us, this, these 43 years that we've been here, and I think about what are, the, what are the things that, you know, it's like a worlds and worlds of days and moments and decisions and, you know, practice and all that that is. But if I think about what are the things that, in my, in my view, are, are, some, are most sort of instrumental or significant for having helped us as individuals, as, an, as a sangha, to, to come to this point, wherever that is. <laughs> And I think of the, the barrier gates, the gates of entry for students as being one of those. I also think of the sessions that we do every month. And these things are not typical, by the way. And the Dadaroshi, you know, we don't talk about it so much anymore because it's been part of us for a long time. But in the early years, Dadaroshi talked about it quite a bit because he was establishing something that was new and that wasn't necessarily the norm. And he, he talked about how in most centers, the center where he had trained, that people were members. They came in and they practiced and they participated and they uh, contributed financially and they became members. And that was the Sangha. And Dadarushi said, he said, I don't want members. I want students. I want people to be and see themselves and practice as students, not as members. And just that shift, that, that, that framing, was seismic, I think. And then establishing those barrier gates, which is really a process of clarification. Why? 
Why? Understand what you're doing. Have your eyes open. You're making choices. Why is that important to you? The mind of a student is a wonderful state of mind. When we seek something that is essential, that is powerful, that is good, true, in that seeking, the mind is alert, it's poised, it's attentive, because it wants to be, it needs to be. There's something that is underway that's essential that is not to be missed. And the signs for that journey are not necessarily clear. And so as we are trying to understand what is it we're doing, what are we in the midst of, how do we do this, we need to pay attention so that we're reading those signs. It's like being profoundly thirsty to the point of pain, and you hear the sound of rushing water. You have to follow that sound. You have to find that stream. And you'll do whatever you need to do to find it and then drink from it and not rest until you've quenched your thirst. That's bodhicitta. The Buddha had that in perhaps a most profound way. And because of that, he realized and has brought this Dharma into our world. And all of those following him brought it down to us. So many profound teachings, practices, instructions, encouragements, cautions. Awareness of the teacher in this characteristic is recognize that all of those before us are so, so essential and that it's our living teachers that meet us in person so we can complete that link of transmission, make it a living link, just as it's been carried on over these hundreds of years. And so our living teachers teach us through their Dharma wisdom, which has to have be from their own experience, which means their struggles, their humanity, their failures, their doubts, how they met with those, all the help that they received. This is the transmission. And so we see why it's so important that we practice together like this. Knee to knee, flesh to flesh, breath to breath, feeling the heat of the room rise as we practice together. You know, when the pandemic was in full swing and we threw everything into online and off we went, there was a point at which we began to wonder, like, will people ever come back? <laughs> really? Because it's like now everybody was coming in from their living room, from their dining room, from, time, from their cars. I did dokes on with people on their rooftops in New York City, sitting in the park while park lawnmowers went by. I mean, it was all over the place. And we thought, it's so easy, it's so convenient. Will people come back? Will they recognize or see that it is how, how valuable that is, how fortunate we were to be able to have that, and what it's not. Well, it seems that concern was not warranted. 
It's really essential. There's something that happens when we practice in the same space, physically, that doesn't happen otherwise. And that thing really is the transmission. It is person-to-person experiencing through, through sort of, um, you know, sort of obvious uh, moments such as this, where there's a teaching, a teisho, or face-to-face teaching, and so on. But there are many, many moments that are not so conscious, not so held up, where we're practicing together, experiencing each other in ways that we have some awareness of, that are changing us, affecting us, helping us, showing us the self as it arises. That's why we speak of mutual polishing, to open our hearts and minds to the teacher and to have trust is really to open the door to the Dharma. And that means that it, it, it requires having a proper, healthy perspective and relationship with our teachers, which really means to not only respect our teachers, but to respect the role of the teacher in the same way that we should have respect as students and for the role of the student. If we think of that as a role, we don't really think of it as that. I don't, but I I am. Um, (laughs) For the purpose of just thinking about it as something that we step into and that brings with it responsibilities, certain qualities and characteristics, in the same way that it's clear that a person in the role of a teacher has responsibilities, but a student does too. And that when we have that, bring that respect, we're respecting ourselves, we're respecting each other, and we're respecting the Dharma. When we idealize, project, when we rely too much on our teachers or close ourselves off from them, are too shy, too hidden, that's not having, that's not having self-respect. It's not about being aggressive, but it's about showing up, seeking, asking for what is needed. And the next characteristic is propagating prajna. And I think of this as student before all. The commentary says, this is to say, you should understand who you are and what you're made of. You should find out what your mind is made of, what your mind's projections are made of, and what your relationship with your world is made of. And it was understand the world that we're in. All of it, inside and outside, through and through. Commentary says, it's like being a good horse in a good stable. You're well-groomed and well-fed. You see that you're growing up nicely and becoming a trustworthy Dharma person. (laughs) What better than to grow up nicely? <laughs> to propagate the Dharma. So there is the prajna. So there is an emphasis in Buddhism. Not being stingy, not withholding the precept of not withholding, is traditionally about not withholding the Dharma. Not withholding the Dharma from someone who is asking and who would benefit from it. The Buddha said, he said, he, he did not tight, teach with a tight fist. 
And was, he wasn't holding anything back. Everything he had to offer, he offered. To be generous. And to offer when it's being asked for, right? So we don't proselytize. But what is the best way to share the Dharma, the truest, most trustworthy way, the most reliable way to propagate prajna? Be a person of the Dharma. It's not complicated. Be a person of the Dharma throughout your body and mind and throughout your life. That will speak. And that will speak truths that people will trust. Words can be very powerful, but they can also be very deceptive. When we see something in someone, particularly with consistency, we gain trust. And so to be a person of the Dharma, to let every thought, word, and action arise from and accord with the Dharma, to not be concerned about gaining, about recognition, about whether we're getting ahead or not, those things are really not important. When we are, you know, it's like running a race. It's not a race, bad analogy, but I'll stick with it. It's like running a race. (laughs) And you could run as fast as you can because you want to beat all the other people. Or you can run just for the love of running. Just run. And so all too often students will say something, or practitioners will say something about being a good practitioner, not a good practitioner. We should be more interested in practicing and continuing to deepen our practice than in trying to be a vessel of the Dharma. You already are. If we just live in that, and if we don't lose that, don't lose it. Stay with it. Keep that with you, always. To me, what's my my primary responsibility to you, to the Sangha, is that I... Be a student of the Dharma. The moment that stops, you should kick me out. Or just remind me. Try that first. (laughs) Give me a chance. (laughs) Everybody forgets, right? (laughs) And to be more and more at ease with, as we are, being a person of the Dharma, that means so that we're not putting unrealistic expectations on ourselves, be more and more at ease with with stumbling, with screwing up, which just gives us opportunities to take responsibility, to do these practices, to learn, to develop. It doesn't happen in the abstract. And to be aware that the self, the sort of habit of the self can rebuild itself from nothing. That's what it's doing all the time. Rebuilding itself from nothing. And so to be alert within ourselves for those forces that can still be strong or may have seemed to have grown quiet, but the seeds of which are still there, our arrogance, our self-doubt, saying too much, saying too little. To know what our own tendencies are. right? To be more adept, more and more adept at our own self. Commentary says, you don't have to be pious and refuse to talk about anything but the Dharma, but your conversations can take place within the context of the Dharma. Whatever you do, you remain within the context 
It's called the Buddha field of the Dharma. And you understand that your life is soaked in the Dharma. You can still crack jokes. You can sing in the shower. But you're not taking time off. Your life is infested with Dharma. Interesting choice of words. (laughs) And that doesn't just happen all at once. Of course not. Right? In the beginning, it just sits on the surface of our skin. Maybe not even. Maybe it sits a foot in front of us. But as it begins to soak in, as we soak it in, that's our job, to soak it in through practice, through awareness, through remembering, through our aspirations, then more and more our life becomes a life of Dharma. And in a way that isn't self-conscious. It's not a big deal. It's not something we wear on our sleeves. Don't wear it on your sleeves. Be simple. Self-righteousness is not attractive. It's not helpful. But stinginess also is not offering what can be helped, what can be helpful and needed. I really believe the best way to ensure that our practice is healthy and straightforward and clean is to just become more, better and better, and just be more just everyday conscious of and giving voice to in our own intentions, in our liturgy of, our, of, of practicing the way. In a sense, we wake up and dedicate ourselves to minding, I mind my own business. I'm taking care of my own business. And that includes all of you. It includes everyone. But I have to take care of my business in order to do that. And then the last is to have an attitude of goodness. I think of this as no anxiety about non-perfection. The commentary says, properly consider the Dharma. Properly considering the Dharma will help you to realize and appreciate the basic goodness that exists within you and within others. By studying how your mind can be unwound and by undoing what you're doing, you discover basic goodness. You see that fundamental quality in everyone. As we become unwound, untying the knot, loosening what is taught, illuminating what is hidden. What is revealed is our basic goodness. Because every living thing seeks life. That's sort of an indication in in the deepest way, in the broadest way, of a basic goodness that affirms, is affirming of life. And moves away from, wants to avoid what is destructive of life. Well, then why is it that we see so many people moving towards the destruction of life and working against the affirmation of life? That's delusion. That's the power of our views to create a world in which that seems right and makes sense. And that looks like a way to affirm life, that hatred becomes a way to love. Violence becomes a way to peace. It's madness. But that's what happens in our delusion, is upside down looks right side up. And when we see that more and more, we see it in everyone, that basic goodness. Of course, sometimes it's 
profoundly hidden. It is not sitting on the surface. That's why we have to go beneath the surface within ourselves so that we can see that and in others. And to be unwound, we might also think of as being unwounded. And so practice, in a way, is, is the quintessential healing. That's why the Buddha was likened to a physician. It's like a cut that bleeds and then dries and then scabs and falls off, but it leaves a little scar, a reminder of having lived through something, of having gone through something. Right? So we can carry all kinds of scars, and sometimes they're very deep. But when we look at them from the perspective of the path, where we turn everything, bring everything into the, into the Dharma, as a person of the Dharma, then that is a, a, a reminder, a, an indication of something, of a struggle, of something we've experienced, of something that we've done, of living within samsara, of a moment of absent-mindedness or selfishness on the part of ourself or another. In other words, how can we use that? And so we have ways to unwound ourselves. We atone. We take responsibility. We study. We take vows. We forgive. We learn. We learn. We're, we're constantly accumulating more and more experience as practitioners. Right? And in that experience, it should be helping us to be able to live within all of this. To unwound ourselves, to atone, to forgive, is not forgetting. There's a scar. It's not about trying to erase a past action. But rather, it's about forgetting to establish a fixed and separate sense of self, to establish a fixed sense of self and other, to establish inherent intrinsic qualities, and there's nothing to be done about it. To be a person of the Dharma is really to be committed to living well and lightly, right? to live lightly. Dogen said that when you're riding a horse and the horse throws you on your way down to the ground, you're not thinking about what you need to pick up for dinner or that slight that somebody gave to you earlier in the day. There's no time for that. Time is too precious. The moment is too full of potential. It requires everything. And so that means we really need to take care of the things that we carry. The burdens, the grudges and resentments, the pains. And that doesn't mean to diminish them. It doesn't mean to pretend they're not there. They're there. But as a person of the Dharma, it means to attend to them right? with the aspiration to carry them more and more lightly. Let that scar Heal some more. Become more and more slight. Because nothing is fixed, that's always possible. 
And what remains and begins to show up more and more is goodness. And that allows us to begin or to more easily relax as a person of the Dharma. And relax doesn't mean to become complacent or lazy, but that it's not a race. No one wins. No one loses. It's not that game. It's not a game at all. It's much more important. And the commentary says, Trimper Pache said, let's add another step to these seven characteristics. Remember them. That's the eighth step. Remember them. He said, becoming a Dharma person means that the Dharma is no longer regarded as a separate entity, but is just part of your basic existence. You're making friends with the Dharma, so that whether you're practicing or not, away or at home, you have a sense of the immediacy and the directness and the rightness and the truthfulness and the realness of the Dharma. And that's not just an idea. It becomes more and more palpable. It's something you feel. It's something you experience within you. And when we don't experience that, as we all, I'm assuming, know, not having that experience, maybe you're not having that experience right now, this is how that grows. This is how that develops. And the more it becomes part of our very being, having that sort of integrated into our being, as he says, it soaks through everything. This is how you blend your mind with the Dharma. Then that whole duality of practicing and not practice, of what is sacred and mundane, of being on the path or off the path, has less and less meaning because you're just a a person of the Dharma. And that has happened not just because you have Buddha nature, but it's happened because you are a person of the Dharma. You are practicing being that very person. And that's what's been transmitted. That's what everybody before us has done. That's where those teachings come from that magnetize our mind that we feel so drawn towards, that inspire us and empower us. They're not just concepts. What we're experiencing is that blending of that teacher, that person's experience, not just their mind, their experience of the Dharma that's coming out in a way that's alive and you feel it. It's compelling. And so let's appreciate that we are in the midst of all of this. Cultivating, creating, practicing, embodying all of this. And to be accepting and respectful of wherever we are and whatever, however we're experiencing these characteristics. Are they close? Are they distant? Do you trust them? Are you suspicious? The Dharma has no problem with any of that, or with any of you, or with any part of you. All of that is invited in. So, so let's continue practicing throughout this week, weekend session. I'm going to be going down to the temple tomorrow morning. I'm going to spend the morning with the Sangha there and give the talk there. So I'll, I won't be here in the morning. Hojin Sensei will 
help to finish the session. Um, but I'm not far away, nor are you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.